Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to New Books in History, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Mark Clovis, your host for the channel. Today, I'm speaking with John McManus, author of the book Fire and Fortitude, the U.S. Army in the Pacific War, 1941 to 1943. John, welcome to New Books Network. Thanks for having me, Mark. Well, thanks for being on our podcast. I was wondering if you could start us off by telling our listeners something about yourself. Yeah, I am a uh, military history professor. My my title is uh, Curator's Distinguished Professor, and I teach a range of uh, military history courses at Missouri University of Science and Technology in Rolla, Missouri, which is part of the University of Missouri system. Um, so one of the neat things that I, that I get to do uh, quite often, because I've written a number of books on the topic, is to, to bring uh, my research to the classroom and see how fascinating, endlessly fascinating uh, American military history is, not just for, for an old guy like me, but for the younger generation, too. And so I, I, try, to, um, I try to do research and, and write books with that in mind. Uh, and always in mind, I, I have in mind the, the sort of, you know, the average person and how they experience um, certainly war, but also uh, the military. Um, that's really, to a great extent, my focus. What was it that led you to write a book about the U.S. Army in the Pacific War? Because that would, on the surface, seem to be a subject about which we have many books already. Yeah, well, believe it or not, uh, you know, we, we really don't. And that, that's a big part of what led me to this. Uh, um, as a World War II historian, uh, of course, I'm, I'm pretty cognizant of the, the sort of figurative plowed ground that we have uh, in studying particularly the American experience in World War II. For instance, uh, I think the atomic bomb, uh, you know, has been covered, you know, almost ad nauseum, um, certain aspects of the Battle of Normandy, so on and so forth. But the incredible thing to me uh, was that when we look at the Pacific War, there's a kind of um, popular sense, at least in this country, that it was really the Navy's war and that the Marines did the ground fighting. Um, and that, that just couldn't be farther from the truth. Actually, the Army did the vast majority of the, the ground fighting in the Pacific in the war against Japan. Um, it had massive um, you know, logistical responsibilities. It's an engineering problem to a great extent, too. Uh, a problem of diplomacy, especially when you're talking about um, the, the mission to China. Um, you know, so it was this incredibly rich, multivaried story that, believe it or not, had been really quite overlooked by historical posterity um, and, and to create a kind of uh, warped sense of what the American war was. Actually, the, the army that served in the Pacific Asia theater was the third largest army we've ever sent overseas to fight a war behind only uh, the European theater in World Wars One and Two. 1.8 million um, American ground troops served in the war against Japan, and yet there is no single book until now that uh, tells, I guess, what we call the story of the Pacific-Asia War through that lens. 
Um, and I, I felt it was very important to kind of broaden our, our um, perspective of the American war in the Pacific and our context while also making the point, I, I'm not at all minimizing or, or denigrating um, the, the role of the Marine Corps, uh, quite the opposite, actually. But I'm hoping to just kind of broaden the lens and also kind of perhaps, you know, give us some lessons as to how the services work together, um, problems that, that arose at times and why that happened and when they did work together well and all these kinds of things that I, I think remain very, very important all these decades later. Hmm. Well, I was thinking when you uh, start your book, you begin that process by explaining the presence of the United States Army in the Pacific in 1941, just prior to the outbreak of the war. And as you explained, <laughs> it was the Army had a very extensive presence in the Pacific in, in terms of not just being, uh, say, in uh, Hawaii at, at, at uh, you know, the bases there, but they were in the Philippines. They, they had a fairly substantial presence throughout the entire region. They really did, because as, you know, American interests began to gravitate in that direction uh, from about, say, the late, late 19th century onward, um, certainly, obviously, that means sea power to a great extent. And, and obviously, we, we all realize that in one glance at the map, when you look at the Pacific Ocean, you understand <laughs> that, you know, obviously, this is a, a naval war, much as anything, and you're, you're not getting an army anywhere without sea power. So, of course, I take that into account. But I'm also saying that, you know, as American uh, economic influence and political influence grew in the region, well, so too did the, the ground army's presence. An example would be uh, the sort of continued stationing and presence of the 15th Infantry Regiment in China. Uh, for, for many, many years. Um, you know, the best example, of course, you had mentioned is the Philippines, where we have a a military force that is truly unique in American history. It's a colonial force. It's a Phil-American army, uh, majority Filipino and minority American designed to uh, to defend the archipelago for its impending independence, which, um, you know, the, the United States Senate and the Roosevelt administration had planned to, to give the Philippines by 1946. Um, so you see this, this kind of, um, I think you could say administrative and leadership muscle memory in the sense of, uh, many of those who will end up leading American troops in, in the war against Japan had experience on the ground in the various places where they fought. Uh, an example I'd give you is Lieutenant General Joseph Stilwell, who had of course served many years in China before World War II. Um, Douglas MacArthur being a prime example, too, of all his time in the Philippines, Robert Eichelberger, you know, the, the, the list goes on and on and on of people who had had experience uh, doing things in the places where they would eventually lead troops. Mm -hmm. And it's also a presence in the Pacific that does a lot to shape Japanese considerations as to whether to go to war with the United States, because that presence in the Philippines was a big uh factor in their decision to attack the United States because they were really concerned about what those forces in the Philippines would do. Most definitely. When I compare the, the, uh, the sort of Japanese viewpoint of the American presence in the Philippines, what I compare it to in my book is it's for the Japanese, it's sort of like a bone in the throat. Um, the Japanese have convinced themselves by the end of the 1930s that they are in an existential crisis uh, because of their paucity of resources 
Um, you know, then obviously they're growing industrial, uh, military and economic power. And for that, you need resources like oil and, and rubber and iron ore and all those good things that the Americans are much more blessed with than they and the European colonial powers who had come on the scene before Japan had modernized in the late 19th century. So, um, yeah, when, from, from that point of view, um, the Japanese, particularly the Imperial Navy, are telling themselves, you know, there's all this stuff that we want to get access to in what was called the Dutch East Indies. Today it's Indonesia, but it, it was Dutch colonies then. And, you know, one glance at the map shows you that the Philippines stand between the Dutch East Indies and Japan. Uh, and so it, it's what's interesting about it, and it, it sort of you can, you can detect Japanese frustration. And I and by the way, in the in the book, I really try and portray the Japanese point of view too, particularly the average soldier. I found a lot of really remarkable sources of diaries and and whatnot that uh, you know that Americans captured and translated, and uh, it's just really really fascinating. And anyway, so uh, the Japanese are looking at this and saying, you know, we don't really want the Philippines per se, but we have to have them because we can't have the Americans. Uh, you know, with a presence there because it'll completely destroy our sea lanes and our lines of communication. Uh, and so, you know, they kind of reluctantly invade the Philippines at the end of 1941. But of course, both sides had kind of seen that coming for the better part of almost two decades. Um, and including, of course, the Filipinos, too. Uh, they're looking at this and hoping not to see war come to their shores, understandably. Uh, and so they end up, I won't say caught in the middle, because they're really pro American largely. But, you know, they're, they're kind of dragged into this, this uh, you know, quasi-imperial struggle between the U.S. and Japan as well. So it's, it's really a fascinating and, of course, tragic thing. Hmm. How prepared was the U.S. Army in the Pacific in 1941? Because, you know, the focus uh, of the popular uh, – of popular opinion in in 1941 in the United States was on what was happening in Europe. Those were the headlines that were uh, filling the the newspapers and the airwaves uh, every day. And 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 you, the, by contrast, Pacific seemed to be have been something of an afterthought. Was it an afterthought for the military as well? Or were, were they anticipating some sort of, of Japanese? You mentioned that they had been talking about it for two decades. Were they uh, ready for some sort of Japanese onslaught, or were they? Uh, perhaps not expecting it when it occurred. They are nowhere near ready, though, if I, I guess in using the word they, I mean military planners, they have been you know, thinking about the potential of this conflict, and I suppose by the middle of 1941, what some saw as the inevitability of it, uh, but they're nowhere near prepared. And so that's, that's a major theme that emerges in 1941 and 42, and it's quite tragic, and it, it affects to a great extent, that fill American army, the lack of preparedness um, on the part of the United States means that the Philippines eventually are going to be doomed. Uh, and that has just a catastrophic um, uh, you know, effect uh, in a human sense on those who are uh, cut off, killed, captured, starved, whatever it would be. Um, so that, that army is just simply not prepared for war. Uh, nor, nor really is the Navy. Um, the Army Air Forces are not prepared. Um, it's just a, it's a, it's a horrible, horrible thing. And you know, though military planners had thought in terms of the war, uh, the American people just simply in the 1920s and 30s did not want to pay for a, um, you know, a strong military posture worldwide. I mean, that just simply was a non-starter, and particularly during the Depression in the 1930s. 
when people were wondering how they were going to put food on the table, they didn't want to hear about spending for weaponry. Uh, and certainly they didn't want to hear about any kind of military draft. Uh, now, that had begun to change a little bit, of course, after the outbreak of World War II, and especially the fall of France, which is a bit of a wake-up call to the American public of the, the international threat that's looming. And so you see the first peacetime draft in 1940 barely passed and barely renewed in 1941. But, you know, you're talking about, I won't say too little too late, but, you know, these are these are measures that are not necessarily going to lead to preparedness overnight, unfortunately. Uh, so the Japanese are better poised for war. Uh, but, of course, uh, I think as we all know that a longer war is not going to be their advantage. And so they were hoping for some quick knockouts uh, to, to grab the resources I mentioned a few moments ago and then eventually be on par with the United States in terms of uh, oil production and, and uh, iron ore and so on and so forth. They were, they were heavily dependent upon the U.S. for oil. Uh, it's hard to imagine that now, but they, they were in those <laughs> days. But they want, So they wanted their own... <laughs> their own oil production and whatever. And they, they thought, well, we'll conquer and grab this resource rich empire. And, you know, then we'll be on par with them. And the European colonial powers are in such dire straits for, for because of the war in Europe and their general decline anyway. And the, the rest of this and hatred toward them on the part of many uh, indigenous peoples, of course, uh, you know, the, the trappings of, of white colonialism and all this. Uh, the Japanese felt that they might be able to, to carve out an empire, have parity, and then perhaps negotiate some sort of end to the war on their in their favor. Um, as, of course, that's not what happens. Um, by attacking the United States, they, they unified the United States, and that made the U.S. incredibly potent. As you, you uh, described, though, in that attack on Pearl Harbor, uh, the, the famous attack, the Japanese focus was upon American naval power. Uh, and, and you describe it, and I hadn't really thought about it this way, but I think you, I was really struck by how you put it, that attacking the army at Pearl Harbor was something of an afterthought. It really was. I mean, it, what they wanted at Pearl Harbor was the Navy, the capital ships of the Navy, and everybody else was just in the way. And uh, especially Army ground troops. Now, certainly they wanted to destroy some of the Army air forces, uh, which you've got, you know, a couple hundred planes stationed there, like at Wheeler Field and, and whatnot, not too far from, from Battleship Row at Fort Island, where the, the heart of the fleet was stationed. Uh, but make no mistake, I mean, the, the main target for the Japanese is that, that uh, line of battleships and, and the, the Pacific Fleet's carriers, if they could get them. Fortunately, they were not, you know, in the harbor that day. Um, you know, and they wanted to, to basically cripple the Pacific fleet so that they would then have a free hand throughout much of the rest of the Pacific. And uh, they don't necessarily cripple the fleet, but they certainly staggered it. And uh, this did give them, I wouldn't say a free hand, but uh, naval predominance for a time. So from the Army's perspective at Pearl Harbor, and this is, uh, you know, this was another thing. I mean, we've heard, we've, um, you know, historians in a lot on Pearl Harbor. And quite properly, it, tend, it has tended to, to be through the lens of, of the Navy's point of view. So what I tried to do in this book is just give you a sense of what Pearl Harbor and, and uh, the, the attacks that go on throughout the island of Oahu, not just at Pearl Harbor, but in Oahu, what that's like for the typical Army ground pounder, um, especially like 18 miles to the north at Schofield Barracks, where the, uh, the 25th Infantry Division is stationed and the Japanese are hitting a nearby airfield. And, of course, then they're strafing the barracks, too. And, and so what is that like? What's it like for an Army anti-aircraft gunner who's at the mouth of Pearl Harbor and, and you know, shooting at these planes there or for these uh, 
for the sort of ground security people you have around Wheeler Field or whatever. And that's, that's one of the things I do is I distinguish between, you know, the the larger portion of the Army and the Army Air Force is, of course, the Air Force was part of the Army in World War II. It's weird to think of now. Uh, so I want to say clearly my, my book is not covering the Air Force's part of it, though obviously this intersects with the story. Uh, so when I mentioned that number earlier of 1.8 million uh, Army troops in the Pacific, that doesn't even take into account the Army Air Forces, which obviously was a you know a huge and important part of the American Armed Forces in, in the war. Uh, so there, you know, the Army Air Forces at uh, Pearl Harbor and around Oahu are an ancillary target for the Japanese. The, the, the fleet is really what they want, and the casualty numbers reflect that. I mean, it's the Navy that really uh, absorbs the bulk of the the deaths, especially aboard USS Arizona, of course, and um, and the, and the woundings that day. However, you know, the, the, you know, the Army ground troops were hit fairly hard too, and Army medics were heavily involved in the in dealing with the you know, the terrible human cost of the, of the, uh, the attacks that day. And I, and I go into this in, in quite a bit of depth and including what is interesting to me, um, you know, in terms of the study of gender, army nurses are there too. And, you know, all of a sudden they find themselves just immersed in this, this carnage of, of combat and, and, uh, trying to save these young men who don't even know what has hit them. Um, and it's, it's really quite a, uh, I think quite a captivating, uh, story, though not always terribly pleasant. You carry that uh, examination of you know the role of of women in the U.S. Army in the Pacific uh, when you're talking about the Philippines, and whereas you could say that the Navy was the focus of the Japanese when they attacked Pearl Harbor, when they attacked the Philippines, the focus is primarily upon the Army and the Army Air Forces. And you, over several chapters, describe you know one of these real uh, you know epic tragedies of American history, which is the the you know, the, the plight of the American military in the Philippines and, and then the suffering of the men who uh, survived the Japanese invasion to go into captivity. Oh, most definitely. I mean, this is an army that is just doomed, unfortunately. And the, the major reason they're doomed is that their sea power and air power are removed. Um, the, the What was called the U.S. Um, Navy's Asiatic Fleet, which basically meant a um, a fleet based in the Philippines um, had very little impact on the, the the campaign in 1941 and 1942. Um, the Army Air Forces absorb a staggering uh, defeat when uh, the Japanese get the jump on on MacArthur and uh, destroy a good bit of his uh, his aerial complement on the ground within about two days of the the Pearl Harbor attacks and. So at that point, the Japanese can really kind of set the tone. They can invade wherever they want. Um, they can reinforce. They can resupply better than can uh, the Americans and the Filipinos. Um, but the, the interesting twist to this whole thing, when you look at like the tactical fighting that takes place in 1941 and 42, once the Japanese have invaded and you have this Phil-American army fighting, um, you know, the, the Japanese are really not getting the better of the allies tactically. What Ultimately, they, they win because of um, starvation, because of starvation and hunger and disease that the Allied forces experience because they're doomed, because they're penned into the Bataan. And, and I would say, um, you know, as, as, as many know, I'm, you know, I'm certainly a, a uh, what I hope is an honest critic of, of MacArthur. I mean, certainly had some good points, but 
uh, one of the, the, the terrible errors he makes, besides losing his Air Force mostly on the ground, is that you know when he um, assumes control of these military forces before the war, he junks the uh, the what was called War Plan Orange, which was basically a plan to say, all right, we know you can't defend all the beaches of Luzon and other islands in the archipelago. You, you never have enough people and firepower to do that. So what we're going to do is we're going to retreat most of our army to Bataan, which is a, a uh, you know rugged, beautifully defensible peninsula, which is opposite Manila Bay. Uh, and so as long as you hold Bataan, uh, your enemy cannot really use Manila Bay and use the wonderful harbor of Manila and control the, the capital and whatever. Um, and so they thought, all right, we'll, we'll hunker down here, we'll hold off, and then the, the United States Pacific Fleet will fight a decisive engagement with the Imperial Navy. They'll win it, and they'll be able to reinforce us, and then we'll turn the tide and we'll eject the, the invaders. And MacArthur said, well, that's too defeatist. We can defend at the waterline, and I'm junking that whole plan. And, of course, what happens once the Japanese invade, I mean, they, they go through these you know, stretched-out forces like the proverbial hot knife through butter, and so you end up in complete disarray uh, logistically. And that's the point I'm making is that MacArthur is able to extract his army and retreat most of it to Bataan, in part because he outnumbers the Japanese two to one. And his soldiers are more than a match at a combat tactical level for the Japanese. What they can't match is the logistics, uh, because now your supply nodes are all over Luzon rather than collected in Bataan. And what that means then for you as a soldier is by January 42, you're on half and quarter rations, and there's no way that the army can sustain itself there. And so it's a, it's really a, a catastrophic error uh, that is costly on many, many levels. And yet even though they know this in January of 1942, the, you don't have the final surrender at Corregidor uh, for another four months. Right, and it, it speaks to you know several things. You know, in modern warfare, it's always easier to defend than attack, certainly, uh, and especially when you have good defensible ground, which Bataan offers you. So the Japanese really have a heck of a time uh, trying to overcome allied defensive lines that are pretty well manned with a decent amount of firepower. And, and you know, these troops fight very hard. Um, so there's, there's that. Uh, the Japanese are outnumbered. They, too, end up with some logistical problems. They end up with problems with, like, with a disease. They have medical issues. And of course the allies are dealing with that too. Um, you know, the, the, the Phil American army is large and it is committed to, to holding out as best they possibly can. Uh, so that's one of the things that I think many of them will resent for the rest of their lives. They feel they were able to hold out for a pretty good amount of time, but they were in, in essence abandoned. Well, here we come back to the the theme of unpreparedness, because now you have a United States that's involved in a global conflict and having to make very difficult strategic priority decisions. And of course, priority had gone to Europe by that point in time, and MacArthur was an adamant opponent of that and would be his entire life. Um, and, and you know, there were a number of Americans who felt the same way. I mean, they were angry at Japan, and they didn't necessarily understand what the beef was with Germany. Um, so, from that point of view, you know, these guys in the Philippines are saying, hey, we need help, <laughs> you know, you come and rescue us. And they, they felt like they were just sort of cast out and, and uh, abandoned. And in a larger sense, too, they felt like they had, like the country had broken its 
um, it's compact with its former colony, the Philippines, um, that, that the Americans had a responsibility to the Filipinos, um, you know, to help save them. And, and so this is certainly something MacArthur will argue his, his entire life. But, uh, yeah, you end up with, uh, of course, these monumental tragedies. There's two major surrenders, um, one on Bataan in April 1942. And there's, there's such an interesting kind of historical closing the loop or parallel here. The, the, uh, the commander who has to surrender is Major General Edward Ned King. Interesting guy because he's a Southerner who's been reared in the sort of Confederate tradition, and yet he rails against um, racism and against uh, sort of racial condescension. And the first thing he tells his officers when they're stationed in the Philippines, and this is before the war, he says, there's no such thing as racial superiority or racial distinctions. And I want you to all operate that way here in the Philippines, you know, looking at everybody as, a, as an equal person. Um, and yet when he surrenders, it's on the same day, the anniversary of the same day, that Lee had surrendered a grant at Appomattox, not that long before, whatever, 70 some odd years. And that was all that could go through King's mind um, was Lee's famous quote, you know, that I will go see General Grant and I would rather die a thousand deaths. And he's saying to himself, I'd rather I'll go see General Hammond, I'd rather die a thousand deaths, you know. So, of course, then that leads to the, the terrible and infamous Bataan Death March, which hits the Filipinos significantly worse than the Americans. The Americans was about 600 dead. Filipinos, maybe as many as 10,000. And that's a theme, you know, that you're going to see when they're in captivity. Um, Corregidor surrenders on May 6th. And that, you know, so if you were someone who surrendered to Corregidor, you would not have been in the Bataan Death March. Uh, so you would have had it a little bit better in that regard, though. Obviously, this was not going to be a good situation for anybody. Uh, but those who were in a Bataan death march were those who surrendered at Bataan in April 1942. Uh, the guy who surrenders at, at Corregidor is another fascinating story, Jonathan Wainwright, because he's the son of a cavalryman. He's a, he's a passionate cavalryman himself. He loved horses. Um, he was the, the grandson of a naval officer who was killed in the Civil War, the nephew of a naval officer who was killed fighting pirates, um, so this is a man steeped in the military tradition. And when MacArthur is ordered out by FDR, it's Wainwright who then has this mess on his hands as to how to carry on. Um, and he himself then is going to endure three plus years of terrible captivity um, that uh, he is the highest ranking United States Army officer ever taken prisoner and, you know, has to deal with beatings and, and uh mental torture and, and you name it. Um, Jonathan Skinny Wainwright is a, is a remarkable individual on a lot of levels. And so I've, I've tried to sort of convey this partially through, through his point of view too, but obviously the, the point of view of so many of his, his, uh, uh, his soldiers. You make this uh, fascinating point that I, I had never really considered, which is while he's undergoing that that physical torture and and he's undergoing that 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 mental torture, he's also emotionally torturing himself. You mentioned how you know throughout this experience, he's convinced that he has gone down as you know this this incredibly as this great failure 
that he they ranks right up there with all the you know the the, the failed military commanders in, in American history, and, and he's not aware that you know back at home he is being lionized as being as as this brave uh, hero who withstood the Japanese for as long as he could. I mean, he, there, you're, you're seeing all the celebration. A celebration that, as you mentioned, MacArthur himself uh, more than a little resented. Most definitely, and it's it's a fascinating study into, um, you know, how mindset can change depending on events and who is the the key influencer. Uh, MacArthur, if you look at the, you look at his statements for the first year or two after the the uh, you know surrender in the Philippines, um, he he is he does not view Wainwright very well. And he takes steps to try and make sure Wainwright does not get the medal of honor. He, MacArthur will pursue this kind of, um, sort of fatuous, uh, <laughs> what else would I call it? Like, uh, contention throughout at least the early part of the war that he only left the Philippines, uh, you know, certainly under order of the president. And that's correct, but he only left so that he could go to Australia and come immediately back with a military force to, you know, turn back the Japanese tide and, and to save the situation. Uh, and I've always felt that that's just, just sheer sophistry because if the military situation was bad enough that they couldn't get help to you before and that you were going to be evacuated, there was no way on earth you were going to have the resources to come back and, and, uh, you know, reinvade the Philippines and attack and do that so quickly. So I believe that someone as intelligent as MacArthur knew full well, you know, he was leaving and then they were pulling the plug on this thing. And so in that sense, I mean, what else could Wainwright do? But he had tried to tell Wainwright, well, I expect you to struggle on and not to surrender and all this. And then he's like, okay, pursue guerrilla warfare and all this. And, you know, these are all things that were just, you know, near to impossible at that stage for, for Wainwright to supervise. Um, so eventually though, as time goes on and people uh, in this country, began to understand what Wainwright faced and began to understand a bit more about what captivity at the hands of the Japanese really meant, the true horror that that actually was. 37% of the Americans who ended up in captivity um, of the Japanese did not survive. And so as people began to understand that, um, Wainwright did emerge as a major hero. And as that happens, of course, MacArthur realizes, oh, I'm working against the a major tide of public opinion and and uh, General Marshall and the administration are, are very pro Wainwright and all that. So, <clears throat> yeah, Wainwright eventually will will of course emerge in the in the uh, public mind as one of the great heroes of the war. But he doesn't know that he's operating as a vacuum in kept in a vacuum in captivity. I mean, he just and he of course he's like any good commander. He think about the mistakes he made and he laments having to surrender and all that. Um, but you know, then he, he kind of focuses on, well, this is what's in front of me. He's trying to get my guys through this terrible experience of captivity the best I can. Um, and Wainwright will really excel at that. The, the more adversity that they face, the better his leadership. And, and, uh, he's a, he's a tragic figure though, too, because he's, he's certainly never the same. Uh, he'd always had alcohol problems. It was said that, uh, you know, on a, on a cavalry maneuver, he could go through a, a like a fifth of whiskey in the space of less than a day, you know, but never really seemed drunk. Um, after the war is when his drinking got got worse uh, because you know he had a lot of a lot of emotional baggage, a lot of things to deal with. The dealing with celebrity too was difficult for him, uh, for a man this modest. Um, so Wainwright is a 
a tragic figure in some ways, but I think also an inspirational figure too. So the army loses its major uh, bastion in the Pacific, and they're now faced with the challenge of fighting the war in other areas. And you focus on uh, the key, uh, one of those key areas, which is China. And China is not something that often gets into the the narrative of the American experience in World War II. But as you explained, they they make a you know a fairly concerted effort to aid the Chinese in their ongoing war against Japan. Most definitely, and th- this is the thing that's uh, fascinating about it. Um, from a, some point of view, inf- including maybe all these decades later. China really is the key to the whole war. Um, not as much the European theater or whatever. Of course, at the time, priority goes to Europe. And even within the war against Japan, China is seen as a kind of ancillary uh, theater. And of course, the British don't really want to be involved there much. They couldn't care less about the, the rise of a kind of independent, um, you know, nationalistic pro-Western China or whatever. Um, you know, I mean, they, the British wanted to continue their empire and, and China could threaten that. So uh, Churchill wanted to, to invest no resources. But really, from the military point of view at the time, China was absolutely vital because uh, for whatever Chiang Kai-shek's many, many, many problems of his regime, um, his continued existence was tying down a lot of Japanese military manpower on the Asian continent and, and also the existence of Mao Zedong's uh, communist forces in the north, which did very little fighting, but again, just their existence um, was creating problems for the Japanese. And the Japanese are dealing with guerrilla warfare, um, really a lot of issues in, in China. So as long as that was the case, that meant these guys were not available to fight American forces elsewhere in the Pacific. And that mattered. So, you know, when we look at the war in Europe, we're always struck by the fact that Hitler embraced a two front war and much to his detriment, of course. Well, the Japanese actually did the same thing. Uh, the army got its war on the Chinese uh, in, in China and the Asian mainland for, for resources and influence and empire and out of a series of major screw ups and whatever that, that you know, are sort of beyond the, the scope of what we're just discussing today. But also the Navy gets its war against the U.S. and the Western powers to grab the resources in the Pacific and, and whatever else. So Japan is constantly struggling with trying to deal with a war that's larger than it, than it can handle. And so in that context, the Americans find it vital to keep Chiang Kai-shek afloat. And the, the way to do that is to send Stillwell there as a kind of military mission and advisor. So you don't have a lot of American ground troops there. You have, you have some, but not, you don't have combat troops until 1944. So it's mainly a logistical proposition and a diplomatic proposition and a, and a kind of intel thing where you're helping keep that regime afloat and you're hoping to supply them. And of course, when the when the Japanese take Burma in 1942, um, it cuts off a land supply route. So you're having to, to supply them via airlift. And then the Joint Chiefs of Staff and Stillwell become fixated on retaking northern Burma and having a land route, a road into China. And so now... What's fascinating about that, and I talk about this in the book, once you're seeing that North Burma campaign in 1943, um, it's now a, an engineering proposition. Imagine yourself having to build a road, in, a long like interstate-style highway through some of the world's thickest wilderness and some of the highest ground you could ever imagine, and just in a completely remote place 
with no infrastructure of any kind uh, in which you have no, you know, institutional memory of any kind. Uh, and yet this is what the Americans and their allies are going to do. And, and what's interesting about it from a sociocultural perspective here is about two thirds, a little less than two thirds of the engineers who begin to work on what's called the Lido Road or eventually the Stillwell Road are African-American um, and, you know, serving in segregated units, sometimes under white officers, not always. Um, working alongside white engineering units, Indian laborers, um, Chinese engineers, a few British in this, and, and some Burmese in this incredible kind of multicultural stew of creating this engineering marvel all for the purpose of keeping China in the war, uh, which the British see as ancillary, but I think the Americans understand much better the incredible importance of China. And of course, we look at it now all these decades later. Um, I think it's fair to say that, you know, the, the outcome of the, the ultimate struggle in China, not just between the Chinese and the Japanese, but within China, between Chiang Kai-shek and the communists, uh, the outcome is, has set the tone for all subsequent history. Uh, it's what, in my view, personally, one of the great tragedies in human history that the communist triumph, it leads to two subsequent American wars on the Asian continent, Korea and Vietnam. And I think it's fair to say <laughs> that the, our our current situation and relations are, are you know not exactly ideal and optimum either. Um, so all this matters greatly, um, and I think in a way much more so than than whatever we're doing in North Africa at the time or or Sicily or something. Though I, you know obviously those are important and fascinating events, but in terms of long term impact, what happens in China matters a lot. And yet doesn't get anywhere near the coverage as the American experience in, in Europe. It doesn't. And, uh, and I think uh, that's one of the things I try and redress a little bit is, okay, what's it like for these Americans who are now on the ground in China? And of course, it's not as if Americans had no ties or, or history there. Of course they did. And, and there was, a, of course, a China lobby in this country uh, that, that tries to steer resources to China and whatever else. But we, we can see this. American experience through the eyes of Stillwell, who is, I don't think you'll ever see a, um, a, an officer, a commander, a leader, whatever, who is so ideally suited for the job and so incredibly poorly suited for the job. It's, it's, <laughs> you don't often see that. It's, just, it's actually incredible. I mean, he's at, he has almost two decades of experience on the ground in China. He speaks Mandarin Chinese. Um, he can read Mandarin Chinese. He has relationships, you know, that he's had for a long time, including with Chiang Kai-shek. I mean, he, he knows the people. He loves the country. Uh, he is a fighter, a first and foremost fighter. He's incredibly honest. He's, um, he has all these great qualities, but he also, he's so honest that he can't stand the corruption and the Byzantine scheming and the politics and all the stuff that goes on uh, in Chiang Kai-shek's uh, retinue and also in his nationalist regime, which is to some extent nothing more than a sort of cobbled together group of uh, of alliances with local power brokers and whatever else. And he just, and of course, he grows to have complete contempt for Chiang Kai-shek, and he's so honest that he can't keep his opinion to himself, and so it deteriorates his relations. Um, he he struggles with um, the aviation side because he and Claire Chenault, the, the American uh, air commander, uh, just can't get along. They have completely different strategic visions for China and Chenault gets a, along much better with Chiang Kai-shek uh, and his family than does Stillwell. 
Um, you know, so it's the, the China theater is really quite fascinating in terms of human interplay and, and the, the consequences of personality and leadership. Um, and I, I really try to bring that to light in the book that you see, you know, the upsides and the downsides of still well. One of the things I, I try to resist is the sort of black or white analysis kind of thing. You know, this, this guy's all good or all terrible or whatever. No, there were, there were nuances to this. And uh, we knew a lot more about Chiang Kai-shek than we used to, partially because of his diary, but other newer primary sources. And, you know, so I think that historians have a little bit better view of him than they did even maybe 20 or 30 years ago. And so all of that contributes, I hope, to a, to a kind of latter year look at this to say, you know, okay, well, here, here are the upsides and the downsides. Here were the mistakes. Um, you know, and, and maybe you decide what you think could have been done better. Maybe the reader can decide for himself or herself. And, you know, after you see these events play out, but I think what we might all agree upon is the importance of this in, when we think about it like this, but also just the, how interesting the whole story is. You mentioned that the United States Army would not fight in China until 1944. That doesn't mean, though, that they're not fighting the theater. In fact, what they're beginning to do practically from even before the Philippines fall is they start this buildup in Australia to go after uh, Japan uh, directly through the South Pacific. And you have a chapter which describes not that uh, you know, that battle with Japan that, that comes up a little bit later, but you describe this fascinating interplay between Americans and these native Australians. You describe it, it, it's, uh, more of a social history of these Americans who are for the first time, many of whom for the first time are traveling abroad in a country that is at the one time, uh, is, is simultaneously both very familiar and also very alien as well. Absolutely. And that's, it, you know, when we think about, American allies in World War II, and of course the famous one is with the British, and of course the incredible impact that Americans have in Britain and all that, that's, that's pretty well-plowed ground. We know a lot about that. And yet here is this discourse in Australia um, that I think has been, I wouldn't say ignored by historians, but just incredibly overlooked. In, a, in our own kind of myopic American way, I think many of us have just sort of breeze past the Australian role in the war, which is absolutely vital, especially in 1942 and 43, uh, when the Australians are thinking in terms of defending their homeland against a possible Japanese invasion, and they need American help. But in terms of combat readiness of ground forces, the Australians are farther along than we are. And, you know, so they're going to do some of the harder fighting earlier on. But of course, now Australia is going to have to become for say this first year and a half, almost two years of the Pacific War, the base for the Western Allies in much the same way, obviously, Britain becomes the base in uh, in Europe. And of course, now this means the kind of social um, interaction that you'd really hardly ever had before. About a million Americans are either stationed or passed through Australia in the course of World War II. I mean, think of the effect of that. Um, one example is on the racial side. Australia is formed with um, what was called the white Australia policy. Um, and that meant that anyone coming to Australia to, to live or work there for any given time had to be white. Um, and <laughs> this just was not going to fly when you're talking about a, a multicultural U.S. Army, albeit segregated on the basis of race. Nonetheless, a lot of the units we were going to bring in Australia to help develop the infrastructure, the roads were like incredibly primitive and where the, and the railroads were by American standards. 
and all that need to change. And some of this is going to have to be done by African-American units. And the Americans saying, no, we've got to have these units come in here. And the Australians eventually relent. The irony of the whole thing, you would think, okay, the, the reception for the African-American units is going to be really hostile. Actually, no. Um, the, the average person in Australia began to have, had very good relations with black soldiers and that the main problems they're going to have is with their fellow white soldiers who are trying to bring, you know, hardcore Jim Crow segregation to the, the armed forces in, in Australia, too. And so you end up with competition over women, you know, the same old story there that you see in other portions of the globe. So that you see the tensions among the Americans on display in front of our allies. In addition, though, too, you see a theme that would have been quite familiar, uh, you know, like to, 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 to you if you were British or uh, if you were Italian or French or Belgian or wherever, you know, elsewhere in this war, the Americans have come in, their, their soldiers have come in with a lot more money, a lot better uniforms, um, a lot more glamour, and they're just irresistible to local women, um, you know, and so there's a lot of resentment over that. There's resentment over the Americans driving too fast, and that's hard to imagine, um, <laughs> the Americans you know, with their, their kind of largesse and their, um, their, their breeziness and the, but also the, the kind of, it's quite interesting. I look at this, I try to present the, the Australian point of view too, the difficulty of understanding the different American accents and, uh, you know, <laughs> the sort of many American cultures within the larger U S culture. There's, there's of course, um, a lot of war brides that come out of this about 10,000 Australian war brides. And, you know, since you're talking about, a group of, of people this large, you're going to have some, some criminal problems too. I mean, we've got rapes, we've got thievery, um, and we even have a serial killer, a guy named Edward Leonsky, uh, who kills three Australian women before he's finally apprehended by the local authorities. So we end up with the MacArthur's uh, command ends up with a very tense situation with the locals as to what we're going to do with Leonsky and how we're going to prosecute him and, and all of this. And it's, uh, you know, and the, really the tragic thing is that when you look into his history, you could see that he had problems even before he was deployed overseas. And if someone would have just stepped in and said, wait a minute, we're not going to send this guy. He's got issues. He had he had assaulted women here in the U.S. Um, you know, the, the, the whole thing could have been prevented. But, you know, things like that could have sabotaged the, the relationship even before it began. Uh, but, I, but there's a larger theme that I try and stress, which is that this sort of um, Australian-American partnership uh, and friendship, I'll call it too, that emerges from 1942 onward, and I, I would say has never changed ever since. It's really when you, you see the modern relationship between these two countries begin during World War II. And yet that relationship, as you explained, was not an easy one, and that was especially true on the battlefield. Because when you have the United States dealing with, uh, you know, the initial uh, campaign into, say, New Guinea, the Japanese are attacking there, the, the United States forces have to work with the Australians. And especially early on, it's not a good fit uh, between the two. And then you describe that primarily yeah. in terms of the command level. Right. And at, at this point in the war... MacArthur is a very, um, I, I think it's fair to say, kind of narrow-minded commander in terms of cooperation um, and and local and unity. Now he worked with the Filipinos well. Make no mistake, and it's partially because he loved the people there so much and had such a uh, an affinity and, and bond with with uh, the country. But I will say, 
he comes away from the Philippines uh, and that experience, bad experience, of course, um, thinking, well, the Navy's useless because the Asiatic fleet had not helped him. And he figured it had just scattered to the winds and, and, you know, and he comes away thinking the army air forces are useless too. And, okay. That, these were disastrous opinions. I mean, it, completely wrong that fortunately to his credit, he will begin to amend, uh, and partially because of the good relationships he will consummate with, um, Admiral William Halsey. Um, it was, and this is a lesser known thing that Halsey and, and MacArthur's fathers had known each other and had worked together. So, um, MacArthur and Halsey, the sons, end up forging an incredibly productive partnership. And it kind of Halsey and the relationship with him sort of rehabilitates the Navy in MacArthur's mind, which obviously that partnership was of vital importance, of course. And the Army Air Forces are rehabilitated in, in MacArthur's eyes by George Kenney, uh, who becomes a really rather remarkable um, air commander through the rest of the war. Well, so too. MacArthur has formed this opinion of the Australians as just kind of backward and not professional. And, and so he has really neglected his, um, his ties with uh, uh, General Blamey, General Herring, uh, several of the other key Australian commanders. And you're seeing this play out in New Guinea uh, in which the coordination isn't good, in which MacArthur has this kind of condescending attitude uh, toward Australian military forces, which is just plain wrong. Uh, the Australian military forces were really, really good. Um, and they're fighting better than the Americans, frankly. And so at this point, uh, MacArthur is, is going down the wrong path. And I think one of the people who helps uh, sort of put him back on, on a straighter path is his key uh, command subordinate, uh, ground commander, Lieutenant General Robert Eichelberger, who is thrown into the mix in New Guinea and then begins to forge uh, better relationships, better partnerships with the Australian commanders, particularly General Herring, um, with whom they form a brother-like bond. Uh, and I think there's a very good message there of understanding, you know, that you're, you're never going to agree on everything. You're always going to have differences as allies, but in the end, you're friends and partners for a reason, and you have to find good ways to work together. Um, the Americans and Australians will eventually do that. But unfortunately, at the beginning of the relationship, and really it's more the Americans' fault than the Australians, um, they were working across purposes, especially in, in the New Guinea campaign. And it didn't help that the conditions of the campaign were some of the most arduous of the war. I mean, you described the logistical issues. They were having to uh, literally you know, carry supplies on their backs to, to uh, get to the battlefield, that they're having to uh, you know, coordinate between not just the Australians, but the uh, native Papuans who are, you know, have a war effectively thrust upon them. And they're, they're fighting a, Japan, uh, you know, a Japanese enemy, which while you know, they're facing a lot of the same conditions, are, are much better situated and prepared to defend themselves than the Americans are to attack them. At that point, yeah, like in the in say November 1942, that's precisely the situation. Um, the the conditions there are beyond belief. I, you know, there's no place good place to fight a war, but if I'm going to fight a war, I don't know about you, but I'd rather it be you know like 75 degrees and comfortable San Diego type <laughs> weather. <laughs> but we, 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 need, we need more wars in Southern California, is what you're saying. <laughs> Right. Yeah, right. I mean, but New Guinea is like the worst place you could ever choose. It's it's you know in the nineties and humidity is high, tropical diseases like you wouldn't believe. 
um, you know, practically look at the place and you have malaria or yellow fever. There's um, terrain like you wouldn't believe with, uh, you know, the, the Owen Stanley Mountains. Some of the peaks range to 10,000 miles, excuse me, 10,000 feet high. Um, you have rivers and gorges and no infrastructure, no roads. I mentioned earlier the Burma wilderness. Well, the, the Papua New Guinea wilderness is really even worse. And, you know, all these little, just a few little trails through the jungle, if you're lucky, but even then, you know, just the, to, to move across the island, say 80 miles, um, is nearly impossible. And this is where, you know, General Kenny, who I mentioned earlier, comes into play uh, by saying to MacArthur, hey, you know what, I think it might make more sense to airlift troops across all this terrain rather than have them try and arduously work their way over months. And we can get them across in 45 minutes. You know, and MacArthur's like, ah, you, you know what? That makes sense. <laughs> uh, but the <laughs> problem is once you get there to the north coast of New Guinea, which the, the Japanese are trying to hold on to, you know, they're very, as you said, they're, they're very well dug in and entrenched uh, coconut log bunkers and this kind of thing. And a lot of it's just swamp. So any traversable terrain is heavily covered with weapons. You don't have much artillery. You don't have too much uh, airstrike support. You don't have much naval support at this stage. It's, a, it's an infantryman's fight, and it's a small unit kind of thing. And the thing that I try and emphasize in the book is this Papua New Guinea campaign, what we often call Buna because that's the, the, the sort of lodestone of it from an American point of view, the place where most of the fighting happens, um, is, is an inextricably linked to the Battle of Guadalcanal, which is way more famous and is associated, I think, improperly and incorrectly solely with the Marines. Well, yes, the Marines did major fighting in Guadalcanal, but alongside the army. And so the, the reason that I, that I try and intersperse these two stories, you know, at the risk of losing the narrative thread, which I hope I don't, but is because they are two chapters of the same book in that sense. And the Japanese certainly saw it that way. And it's one of the reasons why they will lose because they had stretched their resources thin fighting on Guadalcanal at the same time, they're trying to fight for Papua New Guinea, and this was fatal to them. And one of the reasons why the Allies win was the Australian role in, you know, in New Guinea, not on, not really on Guadalcanal, but on New Guinea, alongside the Americans in fighting for those enclaves uh, in in the northern coast. That once the Allies have them, it allows them to have the initiative to advance across the northern coast of New Guinea, which of course is a major undertaking. It will take a long time. Uh, but that's when you see the turning of the tide in this war. And, and especially at Buna is where you see the, the United States Army ground combat forces start to come of age in the Pacific War. It's one of the things that I was really struck by as I was reading your book, which is the sheer range of conditions in which the army had to fight. I mean, you're, you're talking about these incredibly arduous tropical conditions. They're having to deal, you know, with, with Burma, as you mentioned. You, they have to deal with New Guinea. They also, though, have to fight in this incredibly cold climate of, 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 uh, of Alaska, because you have the Japanese having uh, seized Atu and Kiska as, as part of their feint uh, with, during the Midway operation. They have this presence uh, on American soil, American territory at this point, not an American state, but you do have this need to drive them out. And while the climate is very different and, and the miseries in that respect are very different. You, you, as you point out, they face a lot of the same logistical challenges. They're, they're having to go to a place with even less infrastructure than Australia, with even less infrastructure than Burma, and prepare for a significant assault against a prepared Japanese position. 
right? And a, and a very committed Japanese force that is hoping to be reinforced, um, and specifically at Atu, which is just a forlorn place. And you would think, okay, it's up there in the Aleutians. It's up, you know, there in Alaska, way, way up north. It must be like minus 20 degrees or something in cold. No, the, the wind forces, um, in at least in the spring, in the early summer, created more like a, a climate um, similar to like winter would be in England kind of thing. Just, just rainy and sort of misty and foggy and miserable and sort of like 38 to 45 degrees and muddy and miserable. And there was this, there was this aspect of the terrain on Atu called the Muskeg. Uh, and it was like a, a marsh, like a swampy, like I talked about swamps in New Guinea. Well, this is the same kind of thing, just uh, in a colder climate. And it's, so it's marshy terrain, which meant that vehicles were going to get bogged down. There's no roads really to speak of. And it meant for you as a soldier now just, you know, moving a hundred to 200 yards becomes very difficult because you're constantly in this muck, uh, trying to move across and it's eating up a lot of your energy and of course making you more vulnerable. Now you've also got ridgelines and some pretty major hills and mountains where the Japanese are entrenched. So the seventh infantry division goes in there in May, 1943 and fights a rather hellacious kind of close quarters battle with the Japanese, um, a Japanese garrison that had thought that it might be reinforced, but it wasn't because of U.S. naval victories. Um, and because the, the Japanese high command had decided, we don't really want to be in Alaska after all. We've got other more important things to deal with by this point in the war. And they've written these poor guys off. Um, so <laughs> they're doomed, but they're going to fight to the death, as Japanese were wont to do in that war. Uh, so... The 7th Division uh, suffered proportionally uh, the highest casualties for a U.S. ground combat force until the Battle of Iwo Jima uh, two-plus years later. Uh, that is primarily a Marine Corps battle. So, yeah, I have a whole chapter on, on Atu, which I think we unfortunately tend to forget. Um, but it's, it's technically U.S. soil that these guys are liberating. Um, and there's a there's sort of tragic, uh, sort of at least from a career point of view, uh, sort of subplot to this whole thing that the, the division commander gets relieved by officers who are never even on Atu. They're hundreds of miles away. They don't know really what's going on, but they're just like, it ought to be going quicker there. Let's get rid of him. And, you know, and the irony too, is as soon as they get rid of him, then the situation begins to turn around quickly, mainly because of the leadership and decisions that this guy, General Brown took. Um, so you see this, this war, is grinding people up in a very serious way in terms of woundings and killings and the tragedy of all that. But it's also just, it's so ruthless that it's, um, you know, there's this mindset of the, these, these military professionals who have, who have, you know, dedicated their lives to this and just these little twists and turns that aren't even their fault can just destroy their careers kind of thing too. It's just a, it just gives you a sense of the ruthlessness of, of World War II. You end the book by describing the invasion of Macon Island, and this is another example of how you have an army involvement in the Pacific War that tends to get overshadowed by the uh, more famous uh, 
marine operations, in this case, the invasion of Tarawa. And, and yet it's very interesting because it, it seems that, and I, I, it, and it was really interesting to consider it this way, you, the idea of making is where the army is starting to find its footing and you're starting to see the patterns that are going to play out in uh, for the remainder of the war in terms of the army's engagement in the Pacific, an invasion of an island, the sort of operations they're going to face there, and how the army is starting to really master the challenges of, of fighting the war in this theater. Yeah, the, the Army is becoming, by the end of 1943, a maturing amphibious force. Um, and one of the points that I make in this and, and the follow-up volume is that um, when it comes to the to amphibious invasions, the Army carries out most of them in the Pacific theater. Um, you know, the, the Marines have 15 throughout the, the entire war, and um, one Army alone, like the 8th Army, in the spring of 1945 in the Philippines, carries out 35. Uh, so, you know, you, you end up in in, uh, in the fall of 1943, you're starting to see uh, an island-hopping campaign in which the, the Americans are hoping to grab air bases, you know, on this eventual advance to Japan. So you've seen sort of two prongs emerge, mainly through an uneasy kind of uh, compromise between Army and Navy leaders. MacArthur's Southwest Pacific Area, uh, this advance across New Guinea with the eventual goal of getting back to the Philippines, and then uh, Admiral Chester Nimitz, his command of the, the sort of island hopping in the Central Pacific. And this takes us to the Gilbert Islands, where we feel that at the Tarawa Atoll, there are key air bases we have to have to, to continue to advance. So there's two key islands that have to be invaded, the island of Batio, where the 2nd Marine Division is most famously going to invade, and we just simply call that Tarawa after the atoll, and of course it's an infamous battle. It's one of the very, very few battles in the history of the Marine Corps that's exclusively Marine Corps. Uh, there's that, there's um, uh, Iwo Jima, um, and there's, I think there's, there's one other, but in most cases it's the Army and the Marines fighting shoulder to shoulder. Well, in a larger sense of this operation, you have the 27th Infantry Division invading a nearby island called Macon. That's part of the same atoll. Uh, it's not as heavily defended, uh, but it's a you know it's a sharp four-day fight uh, in which if you're one of those soldiers, and I, I you know try to describe this very vividly, you're basically dealing with people who are like dug into these bunkers and tank traps and and fortified trench lines. Um, they're they're not particularly well-trained defenders, but they don't have to be, you know, I mean, it doesn't really take much to, for somebody who's committed to fight to the death, to just hunker down and to, to spray an automatic weapon or throw grenades or whatever, and take as many Americans out as he can. And so you've got to be mindful of that as, as you attack. So that's, it's a, the, the army is going to, to, you know, try and minimize casualties as is sort of the army's way. Um, but at the same time, have an act on taking this ground. So you, you see by the end of this, and I think by the end of the book, then you start to see some of the emerging tension between the Army and the Marine Corps in terms of how they fight sometimes, or at least how their leaders say they fight. Now, the Army a bit more deliberate with combined arms, the Marines a little bit more like direct assault uh, to, to grab an objective sooner. Um, but also, you know, the the, the kind of different individual training that, that leads you into to become a Marine infantry versus army infantry. Uh, in the end, I argue in, in this, in this book and in the next one that they really have way more in common than otherwise, but still you do see some of the differences in tension there. Um, but I, the interesting thing too, about the, uh, the army division that attacks Macon, it's a New York national guard unit. 
the 27th Infantry Division or the Orion Division. So um, it's got the, it features the best and worst of that. You know, the worst could be people who are just kind of political cronies who don't have much military ability. Um, the best of that is they're more connected with the, the population too, in some ways. Uh, so uh, I think overall the 27th was a solid, was a really good solid unit, uh, but it's going to eventually tangle with some of the, some of the Marine uh, commanders later on, not just at Macon. Well, you mentioned the command structure they face there where you have a, uh, you have a superior officer, uh, Holland Smith, who's a Marine, and he really doesn't have a formal place in the hierarchy, but he comes along and he's there basically sniping Ralph Smith, uh, who's the Army commander, <laughs> and criticizing what he's trying to do. And as you explain, you know, Ralph Smith is doing a pretty good job, you know, uh, considering this is, you know, his first invasion, his uh, first uh, campaign of the war. And, 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 and yet, in spite of that, you have Holland Smith, who is kind of riding him to fight it more the way that he would like to fight it. Right. One of the themes I really explore a lot is, is, you know, military leadership, senior leadership and the, the effect of personalities on, on, uh, you know, great events and, and battles and whatever. Um, and yeah, you see almost immediately a con- personality conflict between Ralph Smith and Holland Smith. They're, they're, they're wired very differently. Ralph Smith, was thoughtful, introspective, a, a very committed military professional. He was probably, I would say, one of the Army's three, four, five foremost experts on uh, France. He had fought in World War One. He'd seen a lot of combat alongside the French. He spoke French fluently. And so naturally, the Army sends him to the Pacific. I, I just think that's <laughs> hilarious. It's so Army. <laughs> so, but it, this happens because, you know, they just didn't have a division available at that point, you know, for him to lead in Europe. And they, they weren't fighting in France yet. And they needed a, a quality officer to, to command the 27th Division, you know. So this is the way it shook out. Uh, so Ralph Smith had seen a lot of combat. He understood a lot about small unit infantry tactics. He'd learned a lot about amphibious warfare. Holland Smith is, to me, a, a, I think he represents one of the few weaknesses in the, in the Marine Corps in the sense that some of the people who acquired senior leadership in that war had no business being in that position. Um, Holland Smith was the, the son of an Alabama lawyer uh, who had become a lawyer himself and didn't like it much. And he's kind of casting about looking for something else to do. He, ironically enough, considering his later attitudes, he tried to join the Army as, a, as an officer. Uh, they didn't have any commission slots at that point. And so they say, how about the Marine Corps? And he's like, well, what's the Marine Corps? Um, so he, he basically just gets a commission. He didn't go through the Naval Academy as many Marine officers did. Uh, he didn't go through intense training like OCS like you would nowadays. He gets his commission. He doesn't see a lick of combat, um, but he does acquire some pretty pretty impressive knowledge on amphibious warfare. Uh, but he has this kind of personality flaw in which he's, he has this chip on the shoulder that the other services are always trying to destroy the Marine Corps. And uh, it's, so he's always kind of at war with the Navy and with the Army, and he becomes convinced that the Army soldiers don't fight like Marines. And he's already sort of badgering to this effect at Macon. But what's frustrating for him, he doesn't really have any command authority. So he's like a titular head there in the in the Gilberts, and he knows this terrible battle is happening at Tarawa, and he you know, he cares deeply for, for his Marines. You'd expect that he would. He knows that's going on. And he, and at the same time, he wants Macon done too. And so he's putting pressure on Ralph Smith. And then he comes up, 
he's just he's just not someone with any kind of filter. So he comes up with with and, and makes contentions to the media that are just simply not quite true, or they're half true, or they're distorted. And so he becomes this kind of loose cannon. And you see the the foundation set for some pretty major personality problems um, that, are, that are going to lead to, to real issues between the Army and the Marine Corps. And I think it's very unfortunate. Um, and so I, what I tend I tend to interpret it more as an example of problems caused by even one sort of subpar senior leader. What can happen there versus real institutional issue between the Army and the Marine Corps? Because what you're going to see throughout most of the war is enormous respect between the average Marine rifleman and the average Army infantryman, uh, tremendous respect and rapport there uh, and comradeship. And most of the time, really good coordination and leadership when you have different people than Holland Smith involved. Um, and so to me, that becomes the separator. So, But you're already seeing that at Macon and Tarawa is Holland Smith's, what I view personally, negative effect on the relationship. Hmm. Well, you've already mentioned that you are talking about the next volume. Uh, what's How's it coming along? It's coming along very well. I've been working extremely hard on it uh, for the last almost couple of years, and we're hoping to, to have it out uh, maybe by the end of next year. But, you know, I don't know that that timetable is set in stone or how our current world situation affects any of that. But uh, at least that's the, the tentative plan. But as we, we always know, Plans don't always survive first contact with the enemy. I guess. <laughs> well, I hope that when it does come out that we can have you uh, back on the podcast to uh, talk about that book as well. Absolutely. I would love to. Yeah. And in that one, you'll really see um, a bit more development of Robert Eichelberger, whom I, I talk about quite a bit in this one, in Fire and Fortitude, especially in relation to the Battle of Buna. And I, I view him as really perhaps the most uh, – proficient American ground combat commander at the, the, the sort of three-star command and above in this war. He's in the conversation in my view, and you'll, you'll see this play out in some of the 1944 and 45 campaigns as well. Well, I do look forward to reading about that. And I, like I said, I do hope we can have you uh, back when that's, uh, when, when you've, uh, com- when you've published the book, uh, John McManus, thank you very much for taking some time out of your schedule to speak with us. I hope you have a wonderful day. Thank you. It's been a true pleasure.